It's hard to believe, but uh, we have reached the end of the book of Genesis today. 26 weeks we've been at this. I don't know, does it seem like it's been 26 weeks? Some are like, yep. Uh, anyway, um, we started this way back in the fall, back in September, and then we started to work on it, and then we took a break over the holidays uh, to focus on the birth of Christ, and then we picked this up in 2022, and here we are, 26 weeks later, and we have reached the end of it. And um, I'll tell you, I, 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 I hope you know this, that we could have spent several years in the book of Genesis and still not unpacked everything. I think we can agree on that. But I hope we have dug into this deep enough for the last 26 weeks that all of us can say, I have grown in my knowledge of the book of Genesis. I hope we can say that. I hope we can also say that I understand it better. I hope we can all come to that conclusion. And I really hope that all of us can say that I understand better the heart of what God is doing um, in the message of Genesis. And, and I understand now just how foundational the book of Genesis is and, and how it sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah. And I'll tell you, if we can come away with those truths and we know them and we own them, then I think our 26 weeks has been well spent. Now, we're gonna reach the end, the final few chapters of Genesis today, but before before we do, let me just say a quick word about what's happening next weekend. Next weekend is Easter. Very good. You guys are paying attention. Some of you are like, it is? Oh, man, I better call Grandma. Anyway, um, so Easter is next week. Now, something that, uh, that, uh, that we are looking forward to every year is Easter. And we've got some things planned for next week that I'm just telling you, you do not want to miss. And it's going to be awesome. And I hope that you will invite your unchurched friends and family to come with you next week. We are like many churches in that uh, Easter weekend, we will see the highest attendance in our church all year. And, and I think just about every church has that same, that same um, re, you know, re report. Hey, our highest attendance that we're gonna see all year is Easter. It's like that every year. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, a lot of people come to church on Easter who don't come the other 51 weekends of the year. We all know that. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that, whether you know, it's just tradition, you know, this is what we do. And some of you are very much used to be that way. Well, we go to church on Christmas. We go to church on Easter. That is what we do. And it's just tradition. Some are like, hey, we have family get together. We have lunch at grandma's house. We go to church together. That's just what we do. There's a hundred reasons for why people just come to church on Easter. I want you to know how I feel about it. I want you to know how our church leaders feel about it. We see this as an incredible opportunity that God gives us every year. Same year that uh, we never underestimate what God can do in one hour of somebody's year. And so I hope you feel the same way. We see it as a great opportunity. We believe God can really move in somebody's life. And let me just tell you a little bit about what's gonna happen next week. I, our theme next week is, is homecoming, homecoming. And my message next week is a simple one. And I'm gonna tell you in advance what my message is. Not to give you an excuse not to come. That's not why I'm telling you this. But just so you know, because I wanna invite you to pray. Here's basically the heart of my message next week. That it's because of the resurrection of Jesus we are gonna have a homecoming in heaven one day for all who believe. That's the message right there. And that's a, that's a very important, important message. And, and I want you to know how I've been praying specifically these last few weeks. And I wanna invite you to pray this specifically with me. I've been asking God to help me make heaven so appealing that even those who will join us next week who are unbelievers will wanna have it in their life. That's what I'm praying for. And I hope you'll join me in that. And I believe God can do some very special things in one hour of somebody's entire 
year. Here's one other quick thing I'd like to ask you to consider that um, we are anticipating that our 10 a.m. service next week is going to be our fullest one. And so those of you that might think, ah, it doesn't really matter what service I come to, I could do whatever. Would you consider maybe coming Saturday night? We're going to have two Saturday night services, one at five. We're adding another one at 630 and we're going to do pizza in the middle. So what this means is you can grab some pizza on your way in or on your way out. All right, best of both worlds, okay? I've been working with Domino's to give us little bunny-shaped pepperonis, but they're not working with me on this. So well, I guess we'll just stick with the round stuff. But anyway, if that's something that you might be able to do, let me just encourage you. If not, don't worry about it at all. But uh, we are anticipating a lot of people, especially at 10 o'clock next, next, uh, next week. And if you could use the shuttle, if that works for you, that would be a great thing. We're starting our shuttle, ramping up again. And, um, and, and you can park down at Reardon, hop on the shuttle, come right, they'll drop you off right at the door. Some people have really appreciated that going, man, I'll just park down there and ride to get front door service. I hop on, I go back and it's, it works out for a lot of people. So anyway, that's next weekend. I hope you'll be inviting your unchurched friends and family. I think it's going to be a very special weekend together. Can we pray about it before we move on? Dear Lord, we just ask for your help next week. Lord, we pray that you'll already be tugging on people's hearts to come to church. Even if they're thinking right now, they don't want to. You're not even thinking about it. But I, I pray, Lord, that you do what you do and that you'll work and move in their hearts and they may be open and receptive to an invitation and that they'll find themselves here. And Lord, and we would welcome them and we pray, Lord, that you do something special in this one hour next week. And Lord, we just thank you for what you have done in our lives and how you did a good work in us. And we pray, Lord, that that work can continue next week as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, please open your Bibles to Genesis 48. We're gonna start there, but we're gonna make it our way to the very end, Genesis chapter 50. And then while you're finding that, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit. In Genesis chapter 48, we learned that the famine, remember that seven-year awful famine we've been learning about? It's over, and life is getting back to normal. Well, as normal as life can be when you've sold everything you had, including your own bodies to Pharaoh in service. So it's a new normal, and the Egyptians are getting back into their routines. The Israelites, they came out pretty good on this deal. They're living in the land of Goshen. They're flourishing there. Life is going pretty well. And now we catch up in chapter 48. We know now that Jacob and his family have been in Egypt for 17 years Okay, so a little bit of distance now from the famine, and we also learn that Jacob, at the age of 147, is about to die. So that's where we're gonna pick up. So chapter 48, let's look at verse one and just jump right into this. It just says, sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and he sat up on his bed. What we are reading about essentially is this, if I can just boil it down to you. This is Joseph visiting his very aged father on his deathbed. Jacob knows that the time for his departure is near. Joseph knows that his father is about to die and there are some things that need to be said to one another before Jacob passes away. Namely, Jacob needs to give his fatherly blessing to Joseph and his sons. Now, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time talking about the Father's blessing because we've already done that in previous sermons, but essentially, this is an extremely <coughs> significant moment for a father back in this time. He'll bless his sons. This blessing has everything to do with, with inheritance. It has everything to do with you know, leadership in the family after the father is gone, and, and it's, it's so significant. You might remember, it was the Father's blessing 
that caused Jacob himself all those years earlier to deceive his own father to get the, the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau and then set a whole list of things in motion when he did that. So now Jacob is the father giving the blessing to his sons and this is, this is the stage. It's interesting when you think about these blessings, especially as it relates to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the blessings that they would say over their sons were quite prophetic. And you can trace these throughout the Old Testament and the development of the family and how much what Jacob says here in these chapters comes true in the life of his descendants. But we're not gonna get into all that, but that is what needs to happen right now. So Joseph is there with his two sons. Jacob rallies his strength. He sits up in bed. And what I love about this moment is that Jacob is not interested in talking about his aches and pains. He's not interested in talking about what, what his life has been like, his, his past. No, 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 no. What you see here in Jacob is, I just wanna talk about the Lord. This final moment, he wants to talk about the Lord. Now, I shared with you when we first met Jacob in Genesis. We're going all the way back to Genesis chapter 27. You might remember me saying something like this. Hey, we're gonna start to unpack Jacob's story and you're not gonna like him very much. Do you remember me saying something like that? You're not gonna like Jacob through, through most of his life, but you might also remember me saying this. But if you'll stick with it to the very end, if you'll hang with this story to the very end of Jacob's life, you're gonna see a different kind of Jacob towards the end of his life. For me, Jacob is one of those really good examples from the Bible of somebody who can start the race of life very poorly. And they can run that race of life pretty poorly, but they can finish that race of life very strong. Jacob is one of those guys. It's, he's a man that we're gonna see here towards the end who is finishing well. And as I study these last few chapters of the book of Genesis, I see indications that Jacob is finishing well his life with the Lord. Like, I'll give you a couple examples. We saw 17 years earlier when Jacob leaves the land of Canaan and he travels to Egypt. One week into that journey, he stops at a place called Beersheba and he worships, he sacrifices, and he prays to God and God has a vision and he delivers some, some messages to Jacob. And I sit there and I kind of take a step back and I go, if this wasn't a man who cared about the Lord and was devoted to him, why would he ever stop and talk to God? Why would he be interested in worshiping the Lord if he wasn't wanting to be on the same page with God. I, I see somebody who, towards the end here, his final day seemed to be walking with the Lord. You know, we didn't talk about this at all last week, but when he gets to Egypt, Jacob, he has to be presented to Pharaoh. Maybe you remember reading this, and, and Pharaoh takes one look at Jacob, who was 130 years of age, and even back then, that was quite elderly, and there seems to be some evidence that the Egyptians had some fatuation with extremely old people, and Pharaoh sees Jacob, he's 130, he goes, how old are you? That's a very direct question. Some of you are like, don't ever ask me how old I am. You gotta be very careful, you know, what you say that to. I had a friend one time said, Joe, don't ever ask a woman how old she is. I said, oh, I won't. He goes, you ask them how much they weigh instead. They're like, no, no, you don't. I know better than that. Don't do that. So Pharaoh goes, Jacob, how old are you? And this is Jacob's answer. If you, if you got your Bibles and look back half a page in chapter 47, 
Verse nine, Jacob said this to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. You know what Jacob's saying? He's like saying, in other words, I'm 130, but there's really nothing here to brag about. That's what he's saying. You know, most kids say, like Jacob said, well, what do you want to know, Pharaoh? I'm 130, what do you want to know? You, you want to know about how I, I deceived my brother and tricked him? Do you want to know how I deceived my, my dad? You want, you want to hear about how I got duped by my father-in-law? You, you want to hear about my rival wives? You want to hear about my rebellious children? What do you want to hear about? And, he, and, he, and he's basically, there's nothing to brag about. I, I don't even measure up. To my grandfather, Abraham, I, I'm not even close to my father, Isaac. My years have been few, and they don't measure up. And this is a man, now honestly, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm reading this and I go, that sounds like a guy who's had some change in his heart. This sounds like a guy that had the opportunity, like the old Jacob might have said something like this, like, well, let me tell you all I've learned in my 130 years. And you know where I'm from, I'm kind of a big deal. Everybody kind of looks to me as the wisest man in the land. And you know, look at this gray hair I've got. Now, he could have said a lot of things. But he just says, I got nothing to brag about. And, and, and what I like a lot about these final chapters about Jacob is that he's more interested in talking about the Lord than anything else. And if you think about it, if you think about our own lives, if you think about somebody who says, tell me about your life and tell me what do you got to talk about, is it really, when you strip it all away, aren't, aren't we all just simply in the same spot? Isn't our answer ultimately the same thing? At the end of the day, I'm just a sinner and I am in need of God's grace and forgiveness in my life. I've got nothing to brag about except that the Lord is great and he's done a great thing in my life and I get to enjoy heaven with him forever. That's, that's what I have to talk about. At the end of the day, I feel like that's the spirit that Jacob says. Got nothing to brag about. You want to talk about great men, that's my, my grandfather and my dad. Uh, but Jacob just spends his time talking about the Lord at the end. That's a pretty remarkable thing. There's another indication, I think, of Jacob's faith and how he's ending his race really well um, is that in, back in chapter 47, he's having a conversation with his son, Joseph, and he says, Joseph, you gotta swear, you gotta make me a promise that when I die, that you are not gonna bury me in Egypt. I want you to promise me right now that you will take me back to the land of Canaan and you will bury me um, back with my ancestors. And why do I think that that is an indication of Jacob's faith? Here's why. Because Jacob is saying, I'm attached to God's promise, not these pagan Egyptians. I don't want you to bury me here and be forgotten about and think that I'm just one of these people. No, 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 no. I am a child of God. I am a part of his promise, what God is doing. And I want to be laid to rest with the other men in my family who are all about this promise of God. So don't leave me here. If he didn't care about any of these things, if he didn't care about the Lord's promise, why would he care where he got buried? There's a lot there we could say more about it. But there's just these things that lead up to this final moment in Genesis 48 where he's having with his son Joseph and his grandsons and he'll eventually, eventually uh, have with his other sons. And he just wants to talk about the promise of God. Now, now look at chapter 48, verse three. So we're back to his deathbed now and Joseph is there with him. So Jacob said to Joseph, verse three, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your number. I will make you a community of peoples. 
then I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here, they're gonna be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Now, there's a lot of things happening here that we're not gonna unpack everything, but I, but I, I want you to, to see some things. Here Jacob is at the very end. He is on his deathbed. He knows it, Joseph knows it. And he goes, I wanna tell you about those two times that God came to visit me. And, and he's referring to the time he fled home and he was going to Laban's place and God met him at Bethel and deliver this promise. And he's talking about 20 years later that he's coming back to, to the land of Canaan and God meets him at Bethel again and he delivers his promise again and I'm gonna be with you. And he's like, Joseph, this is so important. You've gotta understand this promise that God has made to me and my, my dad and my grandfather about this inheritance. It's an everlasting inheritance in the land of Canaan and, and don't ever forget this. And I want you also to know something. Bring me your two sons. I'm taking them on as my own sons. They're gonna be legitimate sons to me just like Reuben and Simeon. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying that this promise doesn't end with me. It goes on to you, Joseph. It goes on to your boys and all of our descendants. It is all, we are all a part of this promise and you are full-righted heirs to it. And so your boys are gonna be my boys. We're in this whole thing together. So here we are at the end of Jacob's life, and what he is most focused on is this promise that God gave to him, and he wants it to be passed on to his family. And I'll tell you, it's a little bit emotional for me at this chapter of the Bible, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because here you have Jacob passing on the promises of God to his son and his grandson, and it's hard for me to read this and not think about my own family. You know, my, for those of you that don't know, my father passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, he passed away from just this awful, awful disease that robbed him of his body. And there at the end, he couldn't really move his arms or legs. He lost the ability to talk. He had, he had a disease that just, just made him a prisoner in his own body. And if you've ever had to see your loved one suffer something like, it's, it's a hard thing. So the last few months of his life, he was in a full care nursing facility. And I remember going to see him one day with my two sons, Neil and Brock. And there my father was in his wheelchair. I didn't know he was gonna do this. My father was a pastor. He's been a Christian for years. Wonderful Christian man. And we're, the three of us were there. We were just kind of sitting in a little huddle around his wheelchair. And my father, with great effort, reached out to my two sons, kind of like, come here. And he pulls them in. And he can't talk very good. It was almost a whisper. And he pulls them in. And he begins to tell them why it's so important to keep Jesus the Lord of your life for the whole time. And he essentially shares with them what is the plan of salvation. That Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for your sins, the best thing you could ever do is follow him with all of your heart, your whole life, never walk away from it, unite with him in baptism. Back then, my, neither of my boys had made a commitment to Jesus, they have now, but he's like, get baptized, follow the Lord, and I'm sitting there watching this, and, and I'm telling you, I can't, it's hard for me to read chapter 48 of Genesis and, and not think about our own moment near the end of my own father's life. And what was close to my father's heart on that day 
that these great promises of God of forgiveness and salvation and being a part of the Lord's family don't end with me, but they're going to go on to you as well. And essentially, this is what Jacob is doing. These promises don't end with me. You are in this with me. And, and uh, there's probably a lot of things on Jacob's mind, but at the top of that list was this promise of God. And let me just tell you something, friends. And from that perspective, we are no different from Jacob on that day all those years ago. We have a responsibility, and I hope you feel this, and I pray and I hope it's a burden to you, that we have a responsibility. We have an obligation as believers to pass on God's promises to the next generation and to pass those on to everyone that the Lord brings into our lives, to always be prepared to give a hope and a reason for why we believe and to share our story of what God has done in our lives. We have an obligation to pass that on to the next generation. This is what we're seeing in chapter 48. Now, if you look at verse 11, Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Here we are, Jacob at the end, praising God for the position he is in in life. I never thought I would get to experience this. And here we are, thanks and praise be to God. Look at verse 15. Then he blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. I take everything that I can find in these last two chapters, few chapters of, of Jacob's life here, and it seems to me that this is a man who is finally now, at this stage of his life, on the same page with God and walking with him. And friends, I'm telling you, that is the way that you want to exit your time on this planet, that you are on the same page with God. And so friends, it would be wrong of me not to ask this question. Are you today, no matter what stage of life that you are in, are you right now on the same page with God? Are, are you walking with him? Are you devoted with him? Are you aligned with his promises? Are you right now on the same page with God, like Jacob seems to be, on the same page with God? I think Jacob's coming to the end of his life knowing that it is complete. I feel like God has, has done through me what he has intended to do. And I believe that there's this powerful peace, and I mentioned this last week, that can come over somebody when you are on the same page with God and you are at peace with him. Coming to the end, knowing and believing that's the way to go. Apostle Paul had one of these uh, same kind of experiences when he was reaching the end of his life. We read about this in 2 Timothy chapter four. He says, the, the time of my departure is near. I, I know I'm getting close to the end. And he says this in reflection of his life. I have fought the good fight, he said. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of those, that includes us, who have longed for his appearing. So when we started unpacking Jacob's story all those weeks ago, we would have said back then, he is the least likely of persons in the whole Bible 
who is gonna end well, who is gonna be ending his life with the promises of God on his lips, trying to pass those, those on. But he did. And Jacob is listed in the New Testament, in that great chapter of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, Jacob, of all people, is listed there as one of the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament, right there with Abraham and Isaac. He's listed. This is what it says about Jacob in that, in that chapter of the Bible. You ready? Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. It is, friends, the final moments of Jacob's life that comes to the attention of the writer of Hebrews. It's not all the things that happened in his life. No, it's these, it's these final moments that he singles out and calls Jacob out as one of great faith. He is not remembered. Nothing is highlighted in Hebrews about his deceptions, his failures, about all the times he didn't trust God and all the times he did his own thing. No, 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 no. It's not about what his life looked like throughout. No, why he is remembered and why he is listed is how his life came to an end. Not how he started the race, it's how he finished the race. And he's a great example of this fact that we see all over the Bible that God truly does care more about where you're going than where you have been. Failure does not have to be fatal. Okay? Failure does not have to be fatal. Now, this concept of failure and redemption is a reoccurring theme in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you picked that up as you were studying it. It has certainly captured my attention during our origin series that we see plenty of failure, we see plenty of redemption, not just in the book of Genesis, but we see that through the pages, consistently through the entire Bible. Now, when, um, when we've been going through this series, I've tried to remind you that there's so many things that we're not even tackling um, in our series that I sometimes joke about. It. In the book of Genesis, we've left a ton of meat on that bone, and I hope that you're studying yourself. But one of those concepts that I wanted to dive deeper into but just didn't take the time to do it is this concept of failure and redemption because it's all over the pages of Genesis and the Bible. So here's what we're gonna do. I usually don't tell you what we're gonna do but I'm gonna tell you this one. After Easter, we are gonna start a short series together as a church because I just feel like just this is just God stirred this in me and I feel like this is something we need to talk about as a church but I'm starting a short series and I'm just calling it Botched. Botched. And if you're thinking of that TV show on the Learning Channel about plastic surgery, you watch too much TV. I'm just gonna tell you that. <laughs> but this series is gonna be Botched and I'd like for us to ask and answer a question together as a church family. And the question is this, is failure fatal? I believe in our church family, there's quite a few people that don't know how to answer that question. And how to rectify and redeem a life that has fallen flat on its face. How do I get up again and, and does God still love me? Can God still use me? Is there still a future in the Lord's kingdom? Am I still loved? Am I really forgiven? Am I going to heaven still? Botched. And we're gonna look at five individuals from the Bible who absolutely fell on their face. But their life story teaches us this lesson that failure doesn't have to be fatal. 
And I think it's gonna be a very important series for us. And I think there's some of you, they're gonna find a new freedom that you did not know you could have in Christ. And I think God's gonna use us. So, so that's where we're heading right after Easter and you might know some people that need to come and join you for this short series. Jacob botched up his life on numerous occasions. You could argue there's more about his failures than his victories, but when it really mattered, here at the end, what is he remembered for? He's remembered for how his journey came to an end. When it really mattered, he's on the same page with God. And that's significant. Well, we could talk more on that, but as you keep reading chapter 48, 49, you're gonna see that all of Jacob's sons get to come in and visit their dad on his deathbed and he will bless. He has a word of blessing for each of them. It wasn't always exactly what all of them wanted to hear, but Jacob, in his, it's prophetic. He, he blesses his sons. And like I said, if you wanna take a deeper dive, you just start studying out the future of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're gonna see some interesting things about the things that Jacob says at his deathbed and how these tribes develop, but you can get into that on your own. Look at chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up on his bed and breathed his last. In other words, so he's sitting up during all of this blessing, took everything he had to sit up. And then after he'd said everything he needed to say, he lays back down, pulls his feet up on his bed, pulls the covers up to his chin and passes away right there in front of his kids. And it says that Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed. And that, my friends, is a remarkable ending. It's not a bad ending. I've said what I needed to say, surrounded by my loved ones, and now I'm gonna go be with God. There are worse ways to go, you know. So Joseph and his brothers, they do exactly what their father asked them to do. They take his body, they travel, big entourage of people, they, you read all about it, they go down to the land of Canaan and they bury their father in the cave that uh, their, their, their great-grandfather Abraham had purchased that where he and his wife um, are, are buried, where his son Isaac and his wife Rebecca are buried. It's where Jacob's wife Leah was laid to rest years ago and now Jacob is reunited. That is known as the Cave of the Patriarchs and we've, I've shown you pictures of it and that is considered to this day the second holiest site in all of Israel. Now, the book of Genesis comes to a conclusion with what could be argued as maybe some of the greatest statements on redemption and God's sovereignty in the whole Bible. Because you see, after Joseph and his brothers got back to Egypt after burying their father, Joseph's brothers got a little paranoid and they started to wonder and they started to worry if Joseph really had forgiven them. If you've read this, you know what I'm talking about. They, they began to think, well, what if Joseph is still holding a grudge? What if he didn't really forgive us? Now, what they're worried about is something, I want you to understand the timeline. They're worried about something that happened 40 years ago. 40 years have passed since they threw Joseph in that dry well and sold him off into slavery. 40 years later, they're wondering, has Joseph really forgiven us? And so they concoct this plan. Let's make sure Joseph knows that dad wished for him not to hurt us. (laughs) I don't know if that was true or not, but that's the story they, they told him. And it breaks Joseph's heart when he hears this. And you know, you, you sometimes, we have the benefit of, of knowing the whole story and we look back and we know how the story ended and, and we sometimes criticize those brothers and like, what were they so worried about? 40 years had passed 
Did they, not, did they not see all the things that Joseph had done for them? How when he finally reunited with them, he wept over them and, and how he, he kissed them. Are they forgetting all that? Are they forgetting the fact that it was Joseph that organized their rescue out of the land of Canaan? If he didn't want them to live, why would he bother rescuing them? You know, that he provided for them all these years that he took care of them during the famine. Are they forgetting all of the things that Joseph had said to them over the years and how 17 years earlier when Joseph said, you meant something very bad, but God used it for something good. Are they just forgetting all that? And we sometimes go, how could they be so dense? How could they be worried about something like this? And I would say, hold on, hold on. Before we're too critical of Joseph's brothers, I've met many of Christians who are just like Joseph's brothers. And they wonder today, and maybe this might be you, has God really forgiven me? Am I really saved? I, I know that the Bible says I'm forgiven, but am I really forgiven? Am I really a part of God's family? How do I know that God's not gonna take out his wrath on me? And, and in that regard, there are many Christians today that are no different than, than Joseph's brothers. We wonder the same things about God's grace and love and, and forgiveness. Warren Wiersbe shares this story one time of somebody in his church that came up to him after, after uh, the services were over one Sunday. And, and this lady said to him, I feel like the Lord has abandoned me. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And Warren Wiersbe, he asked her, well, why do you feel that way? What's going on? And she goes, well, I, I, I just, I'm sure I'm headed for judgment. I'm just not sure that I'm saved. She's no different than Joseph's brothers. Has he really forgiven us? Can we believe what he says? You know, when, when you think about what was Joseph's problem or his brothers, they just didn't believe him. At the end of the day, they didn't believe him. And here's this lady in, in Wearsby's church. She says, I, I, just, I just don't know if I'm saved at all. She's saying, I don't know if I believe it. And, and, and Wearsby says, well, what's it gonna take for you to believe? Do you, does, do you want God to do a miracle for you? And she's like, nah, nah I, don't, I don't need God to do a miracle. He goes, well, what do you need? Do you need God to just say something to you? She goes, well, that'd be nice if God could just tell me. And, and Warren Wearsby, he does this. Well, I know where we can get that message from God. And he says, let's open up the Bible. And he wasn't being sarcastic with it. He wasn't trying to be rude, but he's like, if you're telling me that you need a word from the Lord so that you can be assured of your salvation, well, I know where to get that message. And they opened up the Bible, and as they did, Warren Wiersbe said to her, he said this, he says, when we open the Bible, God opens his mouth and speaks to us. You want a message from God? Here it is. And they began to look at scripture together. And by the time they were done, she came out of that saying, okay, I get it. I do believe because God's word says it. And if you're struggling like that church member was in Wearsby Church and, 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 and you're thinking the same thing, can I offer you the same advice that he gave to her? It's time to go to God's word and be reassured of your very own salvation. And I would send you to several places. I'd send you to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. You know what that says? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. Where's your faith get its foundation? It comes from hearing the message. What message? The good news of Jesus. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Where do we find the word about Christ? It's the Bible. This is where faith is driven from the word of God. How do we know that God loves me? How do I know that I am saved? Well, I'm gonna give you a very basic answer. And it's so true. It's because the Bible says so. That's why. 
His unchanging word says so. I would send you to like 1 John 5, 13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, he's saying, I'm writing this so there can be no doubt. I want you to know that you are a saved person. And, and maybe the response, and I hear this from people sometimes, but I don't feel forgiven. Now, there's, there's a lot of reasons why somebody might say that. I don't feel forgiven. But I would, I would ask you this. Do you always trust your feelings? Do you trust every feeling you've ever had before in your life? I've trusted my feelings before, and that's led to broken hearts. I've trusted my feelings before, and that's taken me in the wrong path. And all of us can say that. Because how we feel and what God says are two different things. You realize that, right? How I feel and what God says are not always the same thing. Now, I have a very high view of Scripture. And we are a church that has a high view of Scripture. Make no mistake. What the Bible says, we take it as the literal word of God. And that's the basis of, our, of what we believe and what we practice. I make no apologies for it, never will. With a high view of Scripture. I, I, I'm not the one that said this first, but I wish I was. Somebody once said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Is that where you're at? The Bible tells me so. My feelings are one thing, but what does the Bible say? His, his unchanging word. Because I can tell you, we gotta be careful not to, not to judge God's eternal word by our momentary emotions. They're not the same thing. I would send you to Romans 8.35. It asks a very important question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A couple verses later, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joseph's brothers are, are like us a lot of times. They just didn't believe Joseph's words. They didn't believe his actions. They needed to be reminded like we sometimes need to be reminded from time to time, from God's word, exactly what it says. So Joseph, in response to all this, Joseph's broken up about this thing, but, but he said to them in verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, I hope that you can see a parallel here. Joseph's grace and understanding and forgiveness and provisions are, are similar to, to God's grace and mercy and provisions and forgiveness in our lives. The question is, do you believe him? And where does your belief come from? The Bible tells me so. Well, we could say more, but as you finish out the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph's death. He knows he is about to die. He is now at the age of 110. And he too, just like his father Jacob, is very interested in making sure that the promises of God are passed on to the next generation. 
And he too comes to an end very well like his brothers. Look at verse 24 and we'll finish this up. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So the book of Genesis ends with a prophecy. Joseph is prophesying something that's gonna take place three and a half centuries into the future. And he says, God is gonna come to your aid. God is going to, in a supernatural way, not on your own, God is gonna come to your aid. There's gonna be a problem here in Egypt. Now, way off in the future. But God will come to your aid. Of course, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the events that will transpire in the book of Exodus. Did anybody keep reading into Exodus? It just keeps going right from Genesis. It just advances the story three and a half centuries. And Joseph is prophesying about that. And in doing so, he's telling his brothers and the rest of the Israelites, we ain't gonna be here forever. That God has a promise that he is working through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, me, and you. And our future's not here. Our future's somewhere else. And he will come to your aid. So when that happens, you better get me out of here with you. Man, this is his faith of Joseph saying, don't lay me to rest permanently with these pagans here in Egypt, which he had lived most of his life. He says, you get me out of here and you take my bones to the land of promise. And what you might not realize is that, that when the Israelites left, they gathered up Joseph's remains and they carried him out of Egypt too. That's the next book of the Bible. And then Joseph dies. And then that's the end of Genesis. Friends, I'm not even sure I have the ability to summarize 26 weeks of preaching in one wrap-up thought. And I've wrestled with this. How do you, how do you wrap this up? And then I, I came across what one preacher wrote and I thought, that sounds pretty good. It's one sentence. He said, Genesis opens with God and man in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a coffin in Egypt. And I'm like, yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's it. The book of Genesis opens with God and man in the garden, and it ends in a coffin in Egypt. And in between, what happened? I'll just sum it up like this. Sin happened. So in between that garden and that coffin, sin happened. Sin absolutely intruded into God's creation. And do you remember what God told Adam? For when you eat of it, talk about that fruit, you will surely die. In the New Testament, Paul would later write, write death came to all people because all have sinned. The book of Genesis is about the reality of sin and death. And let me tell you, there is a lot of death in the book of Genesis, a lot. So it started in a garden, ends in a coffin, but in the middle, it's the reality of death and sin. And this book recounts the entrance of sin into the human family, but what I also love about Genesis is that it also speaks to the faithfulness of God and it starts to pave the way for us to be free 
from sin's worst penalty, which is death. And the paving the way for the Messiah. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, you're gonna see that it all points to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, who will pay the ultimate price for the forgiveness of our sins. And he will conquer sin and death on his cross and that resurrection, freeing us from sin's worst consequence. I hope Genesis has been a blessing to your life. Let me pray for you. Lord, again, I just thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. I thank you for your holy word as always. I wanna thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us, how it guides us, how it shapes us. And I pray, Lord, that we'll always be sensitive to your holy word because, Lord, this is where we hear from you. It's where you speak to us. It's it's how you guide us. It's what you've revealed to us of what it means to be a part of your family. And so, Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of your family. Lord, I thank you. We thank you that sin and death no longer has mastery over us. That, Lord, you took our penalty upon that cross. And, Lord, what we deserve, you took upon yourself. And that, Lord, today we can be saved by putting our faith in you. So, Lord, help us to to not be like Joseph's brothers who didn't believe, but who who, who do believe. Your word teaches us about faith and belief and what it means to be saved. So, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room today that's struggling with belief, that, Lord, you'll help us with our unbelief and through your word we'll affirm what it is you've done for us and the hope that we have in this incredible homecoming that we have in our future in heaven with all who have believed. So, Lord, we give you praise today. We lift up your holy name for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray.